God's grace brings salvation. The moment you understand grace, you are saved. When you really respond to Jesus Christ and His grace, you are saved. And then immediately, it goes to work instructing us to deny ungodliness and to live sensibly and righteously in this world. That's why sometimes uh, a brand new Christian were hesitant to call for a holy lifestyle. They say, well, they just trust the Lord. As soon as you and I come to God's grace in Christ, we are to start living accordingly. And it begins to teach us that. The Holy Spirit teaches us that from, from the inside out. The Holy Scripture teaches us that. And grace, the principle, teaches us that. Titus 2, verse 12. We're to know the truth. And so he says, don't you know? You've been identified with Christ. You died with Him. You were buried with Him. You were raised again with Him. Welcome to Downtown Bible Class with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Today, we continue our study of the book of Romans. Pastor Scott brings part three of the message titled, Does Grace Promote Sin? We invite you to follow along with us now as we get started. If you'll take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter six. You know, Romans uh, one through five is the most thorough explanation of grace in all of Scripture. I mean, you think back, if you've been with us, and if you, if you haven't, if you've read Romans and just seen where he started with us and how he showed us to be absolutely without righteousness and then the display of his grace in Jesus Christ, his unmerited favor. When we speak of grace, we're talking about something we don't deserve. He lavished his unmerited favor on us. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who does good. There's none who even seeks for God. You remember chapter 3. And then he said, therefore, having been justified as a gift, Dorion, completely without any payment, as a gift by his grace through the redemption we have in Christ Jesus. And he said in chapter 4, you know, he said, uh, he justifies the ungodly. He takes us as ungodly ones and without any merit, without any work, because if there were work on our part, if there was any kind of earning, it would be a wage. But he says he justifies the ungodly without works. And he just keeps pointing this out and explaining this. And you know, we've got to the end of chapter 5 and look at verse 20. The law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Whenever grace is really explained, whenever or wherever grace is really proclaimed, the non-Christian, the natural mind of man, will argue. I don't know if it's the self-righteousness of man or the wickedness of his heart, but the non-Christian will argue and debate grace. And in fact, both sides 
will say that can't be. When I say both sides, I mean those who maybe sit in churches and are religious and would think of themselves as Christians, but they think of Christianity as a system of doing good enough to follow Christ, be kind of like Christ, and maybe you'll be good enough for heaven. They still think of it as a system of merit. And they say, if you proclaim grace, that will promote sin. If you say God saves sinners, well, then we just live it because their only concept of God is kind of like a policeman who would help you earn your way to heaven. And the only thing that would ever make you want to be good or live like him is so that you'd someday earn salvation. That's on the one hand. And so they'll say, well, grace would promote sin. And on the other hand, and perhaps more common today than even that very common uh thought that I just expressed, but perhaps even more common today in our day, in our world that we live in, the other side of the coin, the person that says, yeah, God's gracious. Grace, it's great. The more you sin, the more grace. It doesn't matter how you live. That person, I don't care what he yaks about Jesus, he's lost. What then? Look at chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be, he says. Don't begin to even express that thought. Paul expresses it because uh, he's heard it so often. Jesus, you know, warned severely of those who just say, Lord, Lord, he's got a grace. We did this in your name, we did that in your name. Depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness, you who do not do the will of my Father who is in heaven. So you can be lost on either side of this, but grace, unmerited favor, grace that says Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, what should we say? Why, we should say praise God, hallelujah. And we looked at this uh, briefly, but what I want to do is just take a second look and look at the very central exhortation of chapter 6, but the whole of chapter 6 is a refuting of the idea that grace in any way promotes sin. Grace in any way would excuse or rationalize or minimize sin. No. Grace really understood the higher the view of grace, the holier the lifestyle. And he raises this question twice. Uh, Notice, he says it in verse 1, and then down in verse 15, he says, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? And each time, he rejects it as wrong-hearted before he refutes it as wrong-headed. So he says, May it never be. He just perished the thought, absolutely not, twice. But then in each case, the rest of the chapter, he shows why that's a foolish, and I mean foolish in the sense of wicked, a wicked thought to even think that God's grace would somehow turn us loose to sin or somehow promote sin. In fact, uh, you can outline the chapter, and we did last time. Uh, he, he asks the question, he says, may it never be, and then he spends chapter, verses 2 through 10 answering 11, if you like, Union with Christ is the thrust of that. Then he asks the question again in verse 15. He answers it, may it never be. And then verses 16 through 23, uh, he answers it and, and explains. And the emphasis there is that we are now to be slaves of God. Slaves of God. And he talks about how that is real 
freedom and real liberty to be enslaved to God. Now, in between that, though, you've got basically in verses 11, 12, 13, and 14, the main exhortation of the whole chapter. And what is it, you say? Well, the little phrase in verse 13, present yourselves to God. God's grace, far from promoting any kind of lackadaisical attitude toward sin and toward God's holiness, forces us, constrains us, draws it out of us to present ourselves to God, to put ourselves at His disposal. Now, I want to take a closer look at it. And last time I mentioned, verse 11, that uh, 11, chapter 6, verse 11 is the first command of Romans. The first imperative in the book. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? Sometimes we think of Christianity as a bunch of, you get doing this and doing that, and a lot of preaching goes that way. You know, kind of a little cheerleading, get us cheer stirred up, and then here's 16 things you should be doing, and here's 16 you shouldn't be doing. And we think in terms of Christianity as a bunch of commands. Listen, Christianity is first and foremost saying, God has done it. And he did five and a half chapters, huh? Before he gets to the first command. And the first command, let's look at it. Even so, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, it's the first command, it's the first imperative, and really, it's a cluster of imperatives because there are four imperatives here in the exhortation, four commands, and there's a fifth one that's implied. And what I want to do is uh, just look at them and uh, let them kind of sink in on us. He starts out, even so, and that's the implied imperative, Even so, you don't just start speaking that way. Obviously, we're jumping into the middle of the chapter and we're jumping into his state. Even so, what's he saying? He's pointing back to verses 2 through 10. So I want to read them. I want us to see this. Just, Just listen. Are we to continue in sin? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin." Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, He says, that's fresh in our minds. And the key word to verses 2 through 10, I commented on it last time, is knowing. Look at verse 3. Don't you know? Verse 6, knowing this, our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Verse 9, knowing. No, 
knowing, knowledge. And what's going to happen here is this. His thought is centered around three words. Know, consider, and then present. Know something, take it to heart, consider it to be so, and then act. Present yourself to God. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. You see, Paul didn't take the question lightly. He didn't say, what sin should we sin? Oh, that's a good question. Let's talk about that. <laughs> I, you know, I catch myself sometimes saying, in fact, I'll say in the, the uh, class that I teach, there's no question that's a bad question. Any question's a good question. And in one sense, I think Paul would say the same thing. You know, we're an age, though, that loves to ask questions, don't we? And if I were to say there's some bad questions, people say, whoa, how can you say that? You know? But really, I think Paul would say, okay, that's a good question. Let's look at it. But he, because he raises it, he put it, he pinned it here in Holy Scripture. But just the same, he doesn't say, well, that's an interesting question, does he? He says, may it never be. Don't you know? How shall we who died to sin still live? And don't you know that all who have been baptized into Christ? You see, he comes unglued at the question, so to speak. And sometimes that's how we ought to respond. And the whole thrust of this chapter is this. It may not be impossible for a Christian to sin, but to live in sin is unthinkable. Don't even think that way, he says. And he says, don't you know knowledge? All biblical exhortation is based on biblical knowledge. Daniel of old said, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Great need in my life, great need in your life, is to know. Jesus said you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We've got to know our position in Christ. And Paul doesn't just pass over it. He spent the first half of the chapter, 10 verses, explaining what we're to know. And the idea is you should know this. In fact, you do know this. He says, I love that little verse over in uh, Titus chapter 2 where he says, you know, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. The grace of God, God's grace has appeared bringing salvation to all men and instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously in this present world. And you know, that's the way it is. God's grace brings salvation. The moment you understand grace, you are saved. When you really respond to Jesus Christ and His grace, you are saved. And then immediately, it goes to work instructing us to deny ungodliness and to live sensibly and righteously in this world. That's why sometimes uh, a brand new Christian were hesitant to call for a holy lifestyle. They say, well, they just trust the Lord. Listen, as soon as they put their faith in Christ... They're to walk in newness of life. As soon as you and I come to, gra- come to God's grace in Christ, we are to start living accordingly. And it begins to teach us that. The Holy Spirit teaches us that from, from the inside out. The Holy Scripture teaches us that. And grace, the principle, teaches us that. Titus 2, verse 12. We're to know the truth. And so he says, don't you know? You've been identified with Christ. You died with Him. You were buried with Him. You were raised again 
with Him. And I'll tell you, the New Testament does not minimize this. It uh, emphasizes this. Paul prayed. You know, you look at his prayers. And his prayers were not, the emphasis was not that the Colossians would do better. It was that they would be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding that they might bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. I'm quoting Colossians 1, 9 and 10. In Ephesians 3, 18, he says, Oh, I pray that you'd know the surpassing value of his love, the, the width, the depth, the breadth, that we would know that which is unknowable, he says. Knowledge is central to the Christian life. That's why we can't spend too much time in His Word, getting to know Him, getting to know what's really true of us in Christ. He says, don't you know? And he emphasizes this knowledge. King David of old put it this way in the ninth Psalm, those who know thy name will put their trust in thee. Those who know who you really are, your character, your name, will put their trust in thee. Knowledge leads to belief. Now, if knowledge speaks of our mind, and it does, then the next phrase, look at, even so, consider yourselves. This would speak to the heart. And, you know, it's still it's still in the intellectual realm. Don't misunderstand me here. But it's the idea we would kind of think in terms of letting it get hold of our heart. Know it, and then consider it to be so. Let it really grab you. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Uh, this will happen, not as we just merely know these things, but as we repeatedly think on them and regularly mull them over and habitually hear them. Hence, so important as Christians to read Romans 6. To hear it. As I said last week, you won't know these things by your experience. You'll know them by God's truth telling you these things. I don't know that I'm crucified with Christ, dead and buried, because I feel that way. I know it because He says so. And I can consider it so as I repeatedly hear Him say it. And that's why He didn't just write the book of Romans. He wrote Corinthians. He wrote Galatians. He wrote Ephesians. He, he gave us this truth over and over again in different texts, different ways of looking at it, so that we would consider it to be so. The more time you spend with the knowledge of God and the knowledge of your position in Christ, the more you're able to get hold of it and consider it to be so. That's why you'll find that Christians that uh, spend time in the Word, spend daily time in the Word, uh, live more like they ought to, bear more fruit because they're filling their mind and their heart with the truth of God. They're considering these things to be so. They're dead to sin and alive to Christ, and they hunger for His Word. That's why Christians who are under the regular teaching of God's Word, who don't forsake the assembling of the saints together, prosper. Because the more we habitually and regularly hear and listen and heed these things, the more we're able to consider it so in our life. And conversely and negatively, that's why in a culture that is habitually and repeatedly telling us 
that we're just animals. Well, just live that way. We start to consider it so. And so you got people filling their mind with the animalistic, perverted kind of stuff that's on every network and every cable and and we wonder why people start to consider themselves as nothing lower than, you know, just that, not created in the image of God, not, and they begin to see themselves and live accordingly. We systematically and regularly and habitually from first grade onward teach children that there really are no absolutes. There really is no right and wrong. You've got to define your own. In this new age, why you've got to internalize this and make it yours and you can write your own rule book and we wonder why after 8, 10, 12 grades of that they decide that that's what they'll do write their own rules and we wonder why Kip Kinkle or Columbine or these things happen we say how did this happen? how did it happen? we've been systematically saying things and trying to believe things and people start to believe them and consider them so and act on them that's a negative But as Christians, maybe you've been kind of just bouncing along and you don't spend the time knowing and considering these things that you should. Oh, let me, let me reduce it to just this. No. Consider. And that leads to what he says, the central exhortation, verse 12. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your bodies. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Grace leads you to present yourself to God. Don't you know what Christ has done for you? Consider it to be so and present yourself. Present yourself. Now, to present, the term he uses is very, uh, very clear. It's to put yourself at his disposal. It's to present yourself. I'm yours. That's what he's saying. You remember when Jesus uh, was in the garden and they came to arrest him, and Peter got his sword out, and he was going to defend the Lord. And the Lord said, put your sword away, Peter. Don't you know that I could call on my father, and he would put at my disposal 72,000 angels right now, Peter? Well, Peter didn't know that, or he'd forgotten that, or he wasn't acting on that. But the word he used, he would put at my disposal, that's this word, The Lord has at His disposal any number of angels, huh? They're just His. He says, they're His servants. They obey Him. That's what we're to do. We're to put ourselves at His disposal. You've been listening to Downtown Bible Class with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Please stay with us. Pastor Scott will return in just a moment with a preview of our next broadcast. Today's program was titled, Does Grace Promote Sin? A message from our series in the Book of Romans. If you missed a portion of the message heard on the program today, or you'd like to share it with a friend, head on over to downtownbible.org. A free copy of today's entire message is available there for you to stream or download at your convenience. 
We're thrilled to announce the publication of a new book written by Pastor Scott Gilchrist. It's called A Brief Exposition of Romans. It's a 266-page chapter-by-chapter commentary on Romans that we're sure will enhance your understanding of this critical book in the New Testament. The book is available online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and most other online booksellers. But during our study of Romans, we'd like to send you a copy as a thank you for a gift of any amount to the ministry of Downtown Bible. You can find us online at downtownbible.org or by mail at P.O. Box 19191, Portland, Oregon, 97280. We'd love to put this valuable resource in your hands. If you don't have a church home in the area, Pastor Scott would love to invite you to join us in person for our Sunday worship services at Southwest Bible Church. That's each Sunday morning at 8.30 and 11 a.m. at the church located at the corner of Southwest Murray and Weir Road in Beaverton. You can go to our website at swbible.org for more details. We hope to see you there. Now, before we end our time today, let's go to Pastor Scott for a preview of our next broadcast. Don't you know? You died to sin. You're crucified. You're buried. You're raised again. Consider it so and present yourself not to the wrong side and present your members. Don't use any member of your body, your hand, what you do in life, your feet, where you go, your eyes, what you look at, the direction you head in life, your heart, your sexuality, everything, everything. Don't think of presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, placing them at sin's disposal. Oh no, he says. But now he gets to the positive. Look at it. Present yourselves to God. Join us again next time as we continue our series through the book of Romans. Pastor Scott brings part four of the message titled, Does Grace Promote Sin? Until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you.